Hi, Teamsters. I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersectionality. Or not. (laughs) How you doing? I am great. Good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm enjoying we're recording on a Sunday today. And I just spent two hours outside and now my internal, like my throat and my face are mostly pollen. So (laughs) the pollen is real. Yeah, it's pretty um, potent here. And I, I think not everywhere gets pollen like we do in North Carolina, but it is rough. Like you walk outside and it's like on your car. Like you can't wash your car for like six weeks, yeah, eight weeks out of the whole year. And I, then it just coats everything. I took two days off of work this week because I needed just a fucking break. Yes, girl. So um, Monday I was like, I don't feel like cleaning my house, though it's one of the things on my to-do list. So what should I do this week? And I decided to go and get my car washed. Oh. So I did, and I vacuumed it out, and I was feeling great. And then the next day, I walked yeah. outside, and I'm like, hmm. It's like it never happened. That's yellow. Yep. Yeah. So. Ray took my car this morning and got Aww. it cleaned, which I thought was very nice. That's um, so sweet. But I have a white car, and so it's just, it shows everything. Yeah. Yeah. She's dainty. <laughs> so have you been seeing all of these, like now that we're like on the brink of coming out of quarantine, mm-hmm. more and more people are being vaccinated. I keep seeing these posts about um, like if you haven't learned a new skill or whatever during this time, then you haven't used it efficiently. Oh, no. Like all of this pressure to oh, have done no, something no, during no, no. COVID. I am not okay with that. <laughs> I'm so not okay with Hard any pass of it. Hard pass on whoever um, the fuck posted that. Exactly. Yeah. And all these therapists have started making their own memes and they're like, you survived. Yes. You survived a fucking pandemic. Yeah. Calm the fuck down. And one of my absolute favorite ones is I saw a meme yesterday that I had to share with you and we'll post it on our Instagram. But it said, uh, if you feel like you haven't accomplished anything yet, uh, just remember that Bram Stoker was 50 when he wrote Dracula mm-hmm. and Dracula was dead before he killed anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Dracula jokes. That's so, so true. I felt really good about that. You see that also with other people, you know, actors not receiving credit, you know, yeah, ma- their major roles until certain ages and, um, you know, inventions, discoveries, all kinds of things at a certain age. But yeah. I don't think that anybody needs to feel obligated to have done a single thing no. over quarantine. I like we need to just have been surviving. Yeah. My biggest accomplishment is that I found savory oatmeal and I'm fine with that. <laughs> the day you texted me about savory oatmeal, your life was My changed. My life has changed. What have I done during quarantine? Well, you moved. You've got a, I did a nice new apartment yeah. and you've decorated it beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, looks good. Kind of nesting, I think, was kind of like a common thing. Yeah. Yeah. For I'm feel like a lot of people yeah I don't think I'm the only one there but um no I made a list of all the nesting things I want to do over the next like two or three weeks Mm -hmm. I want to make a wreath and make a wreath girl um like a spring wreath like a spring wreath with lavender or something because I don't like fake flowers I really like real flowers and real herbs so I want to make it myself well and and you have like a, a thing about lists too is like Girl, I love me a love good a list. good list, and it's not even like you know. I mean, setting goals for yourself, I think, is important. But 
in this time we need to be really frad like considerate about our own yeah for me having a list and like you know I have my yearly list Mm -hmm. of you know the 20 things I want to accomplish in a year and I never do all 20 no Um, but that's not the point like the point is that for me lists help me feel grounded Mm -hmm. and help me feel like I have something to do when I don't know what to do yeah but they're usually involving like travel, being right. in two places at once, you know, just kind of the usual. Very much uh, a walk to remember. Read a thousand books. Specifically uh, by Jodi Pico. Uh-huh. Yeah. Jodi Picoult. No, reading all of her books has been on my list every year for like the past 10 years. Mm, um, I lot. still have not accomplished it. That's because she makes one every seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So my topic is a little bit longer today. So, oh, so as much as I love talking it? to you. My topic is actually shorter um, oh. and it's all about me. So oh, good. <laughs> so we'll just jump right into it. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> what you got today, C.A.? Well, I wanted to tell you that I have been thinking about taking up writing again. Oh, good. Oh, that's fantastic. I know. I feel really good about it. My dad and I were just talking about it recently. But I think my first project is going to be a series of short stories and poems called Subtle Sexism in the Sky. Oh, who doesn't love a good alliteration? Sexism in the, the sky. Love it. Yep. Reason being, for all of you listening out there, I'm a pilot who has had the great fortune the greatest fortune of growing up with a pilot and flight instructor for a dad. Yeah. Um, so let me just get a few frequently asked questions out of the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I uh, started flying officially when I was 14, soloed at 21, got my license at 27? Mm-hmm. Question mark? Yeah, that was a big day for you. It was. I'm surprised I don't remember how old I was when I did it. (laughs) Clearly, I was in no rush. But over the years, I've really grown to love it more and more. I also fly a Cessna 172 and am building a Cessna 150 with my dad. Cessna. Little Cessna. No idea what that means. Totally Uh, into it. (laughs) So our Cessna 172 is a four-seater, and the little 150 is a cute purple plane um, that will hopefully be mine one day, and it's a two-seater. So do the numbers correlate with, like, the size? Essentially. It's just a model. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So back to the story. I was recently reminded just how much sexism there is in aviation, Mm. and I've been keeping detailed notes for years. Pre-COVID, my dad and another pilot friend and I flew down to Johnston County to hear President presentation from Garmin about a navigation technology that is for airplanes. Okay. So we get there and there's like 50 to 100 people. And one of the guys from Garmin comes around and is offering us drinks like beer, wine, whatever. Now, you know that my dad doesn't drink Mm -hmm. and you absolutely can't drink prior to flying. Like that's a hard, hard and fast rule. But most people who were there had either driven or come in groups. So Mm -hmm. like somebody from their group could be drinking so long as the pilot was still sober, which is why they were, they had drinks. Regardless, all three of us, me and my dad and uh, the guy who owned the airplane, turned down our drinks. Now, the Garmin guy was pretty insistent, especially with me, and really tried to get me to take a beer. I made a joke about being the designated pilot, and the guy looked at me a little surprised. Uh-oh. I'm then, scared for where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> this man mustered up all the audacity he could carry in his overly starched pants and said, well, to land a plane, you need to point the nose to the ground and then pull out the middle knob just a little bit until you get close and then pull it out further and then you pull back on like he was mansplaining 
how, how to, to land, land a plane. an airplane to me. Cool, cool, cool. And at this point, I am fuming. Mm-hmm. I'm already the only girl at this event. And burn it down, CA. Burn it down. <laughs> and I've already had like at least three other sexist things said to me over the course of the past hour. Mm-hmm. So I start to tell him what he can do with that knob. And my dad very politely says, I wouldn't underestimate her. She's got a lot more hours than you. Yes. Steve, yes. A supportive dad. (laughs) This man, now realizing that we were not exactly the party crowd he was hoping Mm -hmm. we would be, just kind of walked away. I think he thought he would impress me or something. He, oh. He was barking up the wrong tree. I'm. I feel like I'm going to be making this noise a lot. Like <laughs> just shaking my head. <laughs> um, at the end, I'll tell you what inspired this whole topic for today. Because so we're going to be talking about mansplaining, but <gasps> mansplaining as it relates to sexism. And yes. Because you can't separate the two, obviously. Right. Um, oh, I am here so for it. I'll tell you the sexist <sighs> thing I heard uh, last Sunday at the end. Okay. Okay. I'm getting riled up already. I know. My body is ready. <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about mansplaining. Okay. The definition of mansplaining is a pejorative term meaning of a man to commit or explain something to a woman in a condescending, overconfident, and often inaccurate or oversimplified manner. Mm-hmm. Lily Rothman from The Atlantic says it's defined as explaining without regard to the fact that the explainee knows more than the explainer. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that everyone listening has definitely heard this term. Like, it's yeah. a poppin', oh, poppin yeah. term. People know. And you already know what it means. So we're not going to get into the weeds as much with that, as much as we are the origin of the term and then sexism and implications. Okay. The term mansplaining was inspired by the essay, quote, men explain things to me. Facts didn't get in their way <laughs> by Rebecca Solnit. And it was published on TomDispatch.com. Tom Dispatch. Tom Dispatch. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> on April 13th, 2008. Okay. And she didn't actually use the word mansplaining in her essay. Right. But she was noticeably the, or notably the first to describe this phenomenon as something that, quote, every woman knows. Right. In fact, she gave a speech about 10 years later that said she's actually pretty ambivalent about the word mansplaining. But in 2014, she published another article called Men Explain Things to Me that was a collection of, I think, seven mm-hmm. essays that were all along the same vein mm-hmm. of women experiencing men explaining to mm-hmm. things to them. So when we talk about mansplaining, I, f- I think part of it is that we're thinking like cisgendered, white privileged men Mm -hmm. and we'll talk more about sexism in just a moment but I also want to recognize that it's not just men explaining things to women Mm -hmm. it's people who feel privileged and entitled explaining things to other people in a condescending way sure so okay it's assuming that the other party literally doesn't know right even though the other party probably knows more Sure, it's like the savior complex exactly Rebecca Solnit, when she wrote her first article, had gone to a party with her friend. She ends up talking to this guy for a little bit, and the guy says, oh, you're a writer. And she says, yes, I've written a few books. One just came out, and she told him the name of the book. And he was like, oh, someone else just wrote a really amazing book on uh, about that same topic Ooh. and like, started explaining it to her. And she was like, I literally I wrote that book. I am the author of <gasps> the book that you oh, are explaining to me. No. It took her three tries before this guy was like, oh, my gosh, you're that person. Oh, my God. Which is Hate just that. embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, on so many levels. 
So the idea for mansplaining originally wasn't intended to be political. Mansplaining happens everywhere from academia to the airport and even around the dining room table. Yeah, I don't actually see it as political. I think it's I think it's everywhere. Well, and that's kind of a point that I got to, which is the personal is political in a lot of ways. So I tried to Google the phrase, the personal is political, because I thought it was something that Bell Hooks had said, who's mm-hmm. a, a feminist writer, but found that no one actually knows the origin of that phrase. Hmm. An American feminist, Carol Hainish, wrote about it in the 1970s, and she argued that many personal experiences can be traced to one's location within a system of power and relationships, specifically men's power and women's oppression. Yeah. So I think when you look at mansplaining as a thing that happens in every conversation, whether it's, you know, at the grocery store or at home or wherever, then you're right. It's pretty, it doesn't feel political. Right. But when you look at it as a system of power that's Mm -hmm. set up between men and then women's oppression. Right. It feels much more political. Yeah. To me, there's two categories. There's like work and literal government and politics or media maybe and then there's like your everyday just like interactions with other people who would assume to be on the same level or status as you so like we're all at the grocery store like you said we're on even playing field you and i are just occupying the same space right and yet the mansplaining consists in both of those two absolutely yeah And I think that that's one of the things about why this subtle sexism is so frustrating Mm -hmm. is because theoretically at the airport, I mean, I have over 100, I think I'm pushing 150 hours of flying at this point, Mm -hmm. which is not a lot. I took a few years off between like all the different phases of flying that I've been through, but I'm not, I'm by no means a novice. Like I know my way around an airplane and an airport and I practically grew up in the airport in Roxborough. And still I have men who walk up and assume that I'm like there waiting for my husband. Right. Or. Yeah. They don't. Right. Yeah. The assumption is, is that you're not there to fly. Right. Exactly. So ad living here just a smidge. Um, another example of subtle sexism from the airport. I was talking to a couple of the guys who are in the pilots club because I've been thinking about joining the pilots club. But mm-hmm. it's I mean, Roxborough's not close to where I currently live. Mm-mm. So I asked one of the guys, I said, do you ever have women in the pilot's club? Or have you ever had women in the pilot's club? Because there aren't many women that hang around the airport. Mm-hmm. This man knows that I'm a pilot and still said, we don't typically let wives join. <gasps> no, he did not he did. say that to you. He did. First of all, you are nobody's wife. Right. Oh my God. So- burn it down. Burn it down. <laughs> Burn it down. The joys of being in predominantly male spaces. Like, hate that. Well, and what's really interesting about the airport right now is that there are a lot of queer people there. Like, there are several gay couples who are pilots Mm -hmm. and own airplanes. Everyone's been really respectful of that, you know, piece of my identity, which has Mm -hmm. been amazing. Yeah. Including the guy who, like, runs the airport. He views me kind of as his own daughter like but still they say things like either not thinking about me being a pilot right or whatever else like there's this distinct difference between who I am and who I am not and how I don't fit into these systems right so one of the consequences of mansplaining as pointed out by Solnit is that it keeps women from speaking up and being heard when they date that crushes young women into silence by indicating the way harassment on the street does, that is not their world. It trains us into self-doubt and self-limitation just as it exercises men's unsupported overconfidence. Mm. 
So there's evidence to support that the ways that gendered behaviors and communication may also reinforce some of the struggle. Yeah. Like if I am consistently told over and over that women aren't in the pilots club Mm -hmm. or that my brother deserves to be in this space more than I do, how does that impact imposter syndrome or Mm. how does that impact your long-term confidence? Yeah. Oh yeah. Which I spent way too much time thinking about last weekend. Well, and also, you know, women would probably at some point possibly stop trying. So that kind of yeah snowballs into the to the current existing issue right and like i said earlier solnit was specifically talking about dating because that's what inspired her first article Mm -hmm. there is this crushing silence the way that men impose themselves in women's lives or people in power impose themselves over oppressed people Mm -hmm. to keep them in self-doubt yeah so who's really benefiting from mansplaining it's the men or the person who's doing it. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, we've discussed gender roles before and oftentimes the, the mansplaining in my personal experience comes from like in the work and, and political world is one thing, but I'll speak on the the other side. Really. It's mostly things that they assume that I'm not educated in. Right. No. And that's exactly what it is. And there's a great, um, flow chart that we're going to have to share on our Instagram too. too. But it basically like explains to men how to know whether or not they're mansplaining Based on the assumption that women uh, may or may not know something. Right. Get out your uh, your cheat sheet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So for instance, in school, boys are encouraged to talk more and take more time. Women are interrupted more than men. What I find really interesting is there's research to suggest that women are interrupted more frequently by both men and other women. I interrupt you all the time. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. You are allowed to interrupt me. Uh, But no, you're right. Women rarely interrupt men. Mm -hmm. Like people just don't interrupt men the way that everyone interrupts women. Right. And again, I'm saying women. I understand that, you know, gender is a social construct Mm -hmm. and all of these things. I am quoting specifically from some research here. Okay, so the language that we use to describe assertive women is often negative or assuming confidence without substance or generally just kind of being abrasive. Mm -hmm. So even the language that we're using to talk about women is problematic. And I think it all contributes to, so sexism is the overarching problem. Mansplaining is one symptom of that. Mm-hmm. Language is another symptom of that. Sure. They, but they all contribute to each other too. Oh, 1000%. Yeah. I think also about other, um, about the podcasting industry in general. I think podcasts that have male podcasters possibly have less concern about sounding credible right. and uh, over maybe having anxiety about being perceived as having the correct information. Oh, that's a really amazing point. I think because we talk about that all the time. We're really concerned about delivering the correct information because people aren't going to assume competence for us, Sure, which is really frustrating. And I think it goes back to a comment that we have used before, which is just to assume competence, mm-hmm. regardless of who you're talking to, regardless mm-hmm. of race, gender, 
uh, country of origin assume that people are, you know, the experts on their lives. So in 2010, mansplaining was included in the New York Times as one of the words of the year. In 2010? In 2010. Remember, the concept arose really in 2008. In 2012, it was the American Dialect Society's most creative word of the year. And in 2014, it was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Okay. So gentlemen... How about a helpful tip for ways to identify if you're about to be an ass? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Did a person ask you to explain something? Or did you ask them if they needed something to be explained? If the person said yes, then you are not mansplaining. Mm -hmm. So if they obviously have asked you for help... Or if you've asked them if they need help and they say yes, then you're probably good to go. There's some gray area. If you have more relevant experience, buy a fair amount. Like not just a little bit of relevant experience. Not just assumed. Right. But a, you know, great deal of relevant experience and ask if someone needs something explained. You might be okay. Like perhaps you're a professor. (laughs) Right. Otherwise, you are probably being condescending and an ass. So a lot of this is also rooted in bias and assumption. Are you making assumptions about competence and intelligence? So we've talked a lot about sexism. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the other isms and ways that splaining, like as a suffix, is being used in current rhetoric. Okay. A lot of this is rooted in bias and assumption. So like, are you making assumptions about competence and intelligence? And also, what is the impact on power dynamics in society? So another form of splaining is white splaining. White splaining is a comment on the minority experience or explaining racism to a person of color in a condescending manner, especially regarding race or injustice related issues. Would you like a few examples? I would. I mean, love slash also hate <laughs> to hear some. Perfect. Uh, here are some examples. At Ali Nadi, which from Twitter. Okay. said the other tried to white explain to me that they are there are bigger issues for natives to worry about than mascots to which i promptly mm-hmm. told him that he didn't get to decide what native issues are more important among other things mm-hmm. so we don't get to tell people of color especially indigenous bipoc people of color what, how they should feel about a about anything yeah yeah um, another example could be quoting Martin Luther King to white explain to black protesters how they should be behaving. Oh, no. Yeah. So that all falls under white splaining. Oh, my God. Read the room. <laughs> <laughs> other offsprings include clan splaining. You're really going to hate this. Oh, I hate the way it sounds already. This is from at the volatile mermaid on Twitter. Ooh, and says, quote, uh, when a Trump supporter tells you that all of this country's problems are because of immigrants and minorities, that's called clansplaining. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm, it's interesting that they associated those words. Yep. Together. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, there's also right-splaining, gay-splaining, straight-splaining, etc. cetera. Oh. So what I think is interesting about this is the gay-splaining. Uh-huh. I understand straight-splaining, like straight people yeah. oppressing LGBTQ queer plus people and explaining things to them in a specific condescending way. But recognizing that this also happens within queer communities I was is really say, important. Well, and I wonder if the gay-splaining is like an overarching term for lgbt splaining within the community i think it is yeah the alphabet mafia if you will um yeah that to me seems like that's what that would mean but also yeah but then why would they nobody in the lgbt community would coin that 
term for themselves as an umbrella term within the LGBTQ community. I think that there is, there are definitely power dynamics within the LGBTQ plus community, Mm -hmm. which is why like the term gold star lesbian has kind of gone by the wayside is because it creates a power dynamic and the idea that there is a better gay Mm -hmm. or a better lesbian than other lesbians, which is just not true. But we can dig deeper into that at some point. Right. One thing I was surprised not to see was able splaining, like able bodied or neurotypical people explaining things to disabled and not and neurodivergent people. Um, maybe that term just hasn't been coined yet, hmm. which means I guess you heard it here for first folks. Um, however, we already speak over disabled people so frequently that unpacking all of the implications of that would be far beyond the scope of an hour long episode. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is just safe to do is assume that people's lived experiences are just as valuable, diverse, and informed as your own, unless someone specifically asks you for an explanation. Mm-hmm. So at the end of researching this, I asked myself what the boundary is with educating people about mansplaining and actually mansplaining, which I think is yeah. similar to what we were you know, just kind of, you were asking me, yeah, was how, if we are educating people about um, disability issues, Mm -hmm. how do we ensure that we are not explaining things to them or to anybody? And I think that part of this is there's a consent involved in podcasting. Mm -hmm. Um, You are consenting to listening to our podcast, Mm -hmm. um, knowing what the topics are, especially going in, which is something that we were really intentional about. Mm -hmm. So you knew coming into this episode that we would be talking about mansplaining and whatever Allie's mystery topic is that I don't know yet, but you all do because it's in the title. (laughs) Um, We're also interested in a dialogue. Like we don't want to assume people's experiences. We are sharing information, research. Mm -hmm. Um, We also are semi-knowledgeable in a lot of the things that we talk about. Mm -hmm. But we are by no means experts. And I think that we try to make that pretty clear. But we're interested in a conversation and a dialogue. We're not just shouting into the void, even though my anxiety wishes that we were just shouting into the (laughs) void some days. That there was no audience. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Occasionally, I still tell myself that there is no audience just because it makes life a little bit less scary. But I want to leave you with one last quote from Miss Solnit. And it says, men explain things to me still, and no man has ever apologized for explaining wrongly things that I know and they don't. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that you and I really do want to be intentional about is if we get something wrong, we want to have a conversation about it. Yeah. We want to make sure that we are helping educate and share knowledge and information and not you know, making assumptions about entire groups of people Oh yeah, um, based on a very limited perspective, even though I think we're all human and we all, you know, fall prey to some of that. You know, it's interesting because earlier today I was watching the YouTubes, as you know, I love to do. And I was watching an interview with Tyra Banks and she Hmm. was discussing how, you know, during quarantine, everybody's like binging all these TV shows and America's Next Top Model is one of those really popular shows. And some things kind of came out about how problematic the show has been over the course of its you know, 18 seasons or yeah. however many. One of which is that she did a a race swap 
photo shoot and she also did a race as in a person's race a person's race correct okay yes that sounds problematic yeah it is and um she did another photo shoot related to like uh, changing a person's race in in a photo so anyway you know she came on the show and basically she was like you know basically saying the same thing she's like look i was coming from it as a a way to like celebrate you know blah 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 but i understand now that that was really wrong and she's like look i did a show about it on the tyra show back in the early 2000s she's like but none of the people who are watching this interview now have seen the tyra show like you guys are too young and she's like i'm a you know i i apologize and i'll probably be apologizing in the next 10 years also because there's going to be a new group of people who haven't seen this interview and that's just the process that's really important to own up to the mistakes that you've made and and growing and um you know basically she was like it's my job to to make sure to make this right and there's other things about the tyra show that i have come out recently that are problematic but i did i did think that that was uh, relatable and important to note for your specific um oh absolutely and island. i think so i don't want to go too much into cancel culture because i'll probably cover it at some point you're familiar with cancel yeah. culture yeah yeah okay i feel like everyone is at this point yeah cancel um, them by thinking about dr seuss who mm-hmm. was like the most recent person that i've heard t- people talk about dr seuss is long gone yes his publishing house decided to stop publishing i think six books because of their racist implications like the artwork or the language that was used they were highly problematic and we know that dr seuss was not like a perfect person um i don't know anything about the guy really not a thing you didn't hear any of this no girl i don't have tiktok girl this was all (laughs) over the news and facebook no okay i live under a rock Well, anyways, people accused the left of trying to cancel Dr. Seuss for racism and other things. Basically, the publishing house came out and said, no, this has nothing to do with the left. We made this decision because we have grown and we realize that this is problematic. And still, the far right is just up in arms because they think the left is trying to cancel Dr. Seuss, Mm. which is not the case. Like none of the six books, I think it was six. None of the books that they decided to stop publishing were even bestsellers. It's not like right. Cat in the Hat or... <laughs> not the Cat in the Hat. Right. Oh, see, girl, stop right there. We're getting off topic anyway. We're way off topic. <laughs> and I, I don't want to cover that without having all of my no, ducks in a row. Also, hate it. I know. Don't love it. Yeah. But also important to note. So, um, yeah, mansplaining is a crazy crazy thing and well and i think that the big takeaway here is it's all rooted in power dynamics who has the control and who is um being disenfranchised i also think it's about how you're raised i mean men are normally raised uh, boys are raised to, to have confidence in general and you know only to ask permission from their fathers so well, why would they assume that they i don't know it's just a lot of um it's and, confidence and 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 I think it's social conditioning, too. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of this happens... I mean, we spend more time at school than we do at home Mm -hmm. once we have graduated from high school. Like, the hours spent around other people who are not your parents are pretty... Your waking hours, at least, are Mm -hmm. drastically more than what you spend at home with your parents. I feel so fortunate in that my dad is an incredible human being who recognizes a lot of issues around sexism and 
recognizes it as a problem without me having to point it out to him. Right. And still some of what he learned and what other men in our family learned was a result of social conditioning, not necessarily who raised them in the ways that they were raised. Sure. So it's a combo. Yeah. I think society has a big impact. Mansplaining combo with a diet Coke. You ready? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. Okay. You ready for mine? Yeah, I'm done talking. It's your turn. <laughs> okay, girl, buckle up. Okay. We ready to go. We're going for a journey. Okay. Okay. Today, my friend, we are going to be talking about the synoptic gospels. The of the Panic Bible. Panic at the disco song. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got yeah, we're it. gonna be talking about the Bible. The B I B L E. That's You've a book got for one me. of those? I ha- yes, I have one right here, actually. Um, and something I do want to note in the beginning of my notes here is that the majority, like a lot of research that I did was from the HarperCollins Study Bible, okay, which is predominantly the Bible that they use in, and if you take a college course on Christianity or the New Testament, normally you're going to be uh, using that as your text right uh for your classes so So is this what you used when you were getting your religious studies that is correct yes that's why you have the bible that's why i own it okay and i have a lot of um notes can you see my sticky notes oh my goodness so many sticky notes all right you ready yes okay so jesus was born between 2 and 6 bc so the gospel of matthew and the gospel of luke both give timelines for the birth of jesus but they do differ slightly so matthew states that jesus was born about two years i'm sorry let's back up just a smidge yes so you said the synoptic gospel yeah i'm gonna get to it okay so but it's matthew mark luke and john it's matthew mark and luke john John is not invited john is not invited to the party Continue. I'm sorry. I just wanted to see who we were going to be talking about. Yes. And I'll be talking. I just want to give back up between. Okay. Jesus was born during these years. Jesus was born between two and six BC. So the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, which we will be talking about today, both give timelines for the birth of Jesus, but they do differ slightly. So that's why we say between two and six BC. We know that Mary is Jesus's mother and she was impregnated by the Holy Ghost. We know the immaculate conception concept. We're not going to spend too much time on that. It was an angel. It was God. It was something. Yep. Jesus was definitely not sex. No, <laughs> but we're that was not part that. of the narrative. <laughs> That's correct. So we are going to be talking about the synoptic gospels, but there are other texts that we, it's important to note kind of for the, for the history of it. The Muratorian canon, which dates back to around 200 AD is the earliest compilation of biblical texts that we know of. Oh, I've never heard um, of that. It wasn't for another hundred years or so that all of the different churches that at the time, agreed on a basic collection of texts. The King James Bible was first printed in the early 17th century. However, there have been a few more texts that have been discovered since then, since the compilation of those texts. So the Gospel of Mary was discovered in Egypt in 1896. Okay. So that discusses... And that's Mary Magdalene, not Virgin Mary. Correct. Yes. I have a copy of the Gospel of Judas... Oh, good. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Oh, you have a copy of it? I do. I have the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah. Thomas is a really common one, which we'll also mention here in a minute. Thomas is usually included in like the Bibles that you read, like the theological Bible. So like the HarperCollins has Uh it in there. 
I actually really like the Book of Thomas. I do too. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's one of my favorites. You can borrow my copy of the Book I of I would Judas. really love to. Thank yeah. you very much. 50 um, unused texts were also found in Egypt as well in 1945, uh, which were known as the Gnostic Gospels. I've heard of those. Yes. Among those texts was the Gospel of Thomas. Shout out to Thomas. Hey, Thomas. The Gospel of Philip. Oh, I don't know him. Philip is the one that implies that there was a marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Oh, okay. Yep. Yes. I've heard that theory. Those two date back to around 120 AD. Okay, so still a hundred and something years after Jesus dies. So, yes. So Jesus died, yes, essentially. Well, yeah, ish, yes. The book of... And I'm sure you're going to get to all this, but they were all written at least a hundred years after his death, right? No, not necessarily a hundred. Okay. Um, We'll get to the timeline. Cool, cool. I'll stop interrupting you. So just to give some clarity for the overall, Jesus was born between two and six. Some would say four and six. Some say two to four. Like in school, we learned two to four. But in the research that I did further, you know, the the range was expanded a little bit. Yeah. Um, Jesus began preaching around between 27 and 29 AD. So we're not in BC anymore. And then he he died between 30 and 36. Okay. So he was in his 30s when he died. Like 32 is correct. the kind of accepted age, yes, right? Correct. Okay. So um, he only preached for... Between one to three years is wow. what they say. The book of Judas, which we just talked about, was found in Egypt as well in the 1970s. This book dates back to 280 AD. Okay. So almost 300 years. Yeah. It's a long okay. time. Yeah. About 250. 250. But let's discuss the actual gospels. So what's the gospel? You may hear people kind of talking about preaching the gospel, and that's kind of the overall storyline of the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, like what he did. New Testament, first few books of the New Testament. Correct. But when people talk about the gospel, like preaching the gospel, it's just about Jesus, life, death, resurrection, and his teachings. Um, The gospels are the four texts at the beginning of the New Testament, like you just said. Mm Mm-hmm. In the, in the modern-day Bible, um, they discuss also the life and death of Jesus Christ. We know them as the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But who wrote them and what was their intended audience, those are the things that are interesting to me. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Who wrote them? You mean it wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No. Oh. It was not. So we're not going to be talking about John so much. The synoptic Gospels are basically like what it sounds like. It's a synopsis. It's about his life and death, right? John is kind of in its own realm. It was written last. It came out way later. It also has a lot of differences uh, that will kind of, we'll cross that bridge here shortly. He was not invited to the gospel party. Correct. (laughs) I'm going to be discussing them in the order that they're written, not the order that they're in the Bible. Okay. So that means that Mark is first. And again, I'm going to be using the HarperCollins Study Bible as my largest frame of reference here. A lot of quotes from that. So Mark is the, quote, author of the book. So who's Mark? (laughs) Who's Mark? One theory is that Mark was said to be the interpreter of Peter, who was a disciple, and that he wrote down what Peter said, which was accurate what he said, but the timeline was a little bit off. That's one theory. Okay. Others say that Mark was mentioned by Papias in many of the other books. So that could have also been the Mark that they were talking about. Okay. Other 
people argue that the gospel was written by an anonymous person and that name Mark was associated with the text later in the second century. That would make sense to me when I think about like names at this point. Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, they feel very whitewashed. They were very common. And that's actually my next quote. Oh, quote. Since the name Mark was not uncommon in the first century, it is uncertain whether all the references given here refer to the same Mark. Nevertheless, it is likely that those who first copied the gospel for circulation knew who the author was, and therefore the traditional name of the author is reliable. Okay. I don't know why it's so surprising to me that the name Mark is that old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting, right? It is really interesting. I know a few Marks. The gospel does not make it clear where the text was written or whom, but it is most widely accepted that it was written in Rome. The use of Aramaic terms and whole sentences, along with translation into Greek, suggests that the author was aware that some of the people in his intended audience knew Aramaic and some might have not. The time frame in which this book was written is also kind of wide. It's believed to have been written during the war uh, between the Jews and the Romans between 66 CE and 75 CE. And we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, and this date is most commonly used as the date that the book was written. Okay. And by book, I mean text. Nobody sat down and was like, I'm going to write a gospel. (laughs) It was just a lot of the letter or a lot of the books in the Bible were letters. Like we'll talk about Paul here shortly, but most of his texts were letters back to the churches that he had established. Um, Corinthians is considered to be the earliest written book in the uh, New Testament. Hmm. So fun fact, research shows that the text um, initially ended at chapter 16, verses 8. However, the other Gospels were written and accumulated together kind of later, and Mark's ending seemed to be a little abrupt, kind of just ended kind of quickly um, in comparison to the others. How does Um, his end? Does it like, does it end with Jesus coming back? No, it ends before the resurrection. Okay. Um, and basically that's then added later. So, so it was Jesus died full stop. Yes. Next book. So it's thought that 16, 9 through 20 were added later by various scribes. However, some say that 16.8 was not the original end and that the original end was either incorporated into the longer ending or it was lost. And the additional text, like you just asked, discussed Jesus's resurrection and visiting Mary Magdalene and two of his disciples, although he doesn't mention which two. Okay. It just says visited two disciples. Probably Bartholomew and Thomas. You think so? Those are the two that I remembered offhand. (laughs) (laughs) The intended audience for Mark's gospel was likely other Jews. The intent for the gospel seemed to be to to essentially solidify. So Mark is like, listen, guys, this guy's legit. He's, you know, he's the real deal. Um, Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus did suffer and die. Mm-hmm. That was like the main purpose. That was the, the thesis sure. statement for yeah. Mark. The majority of the gospel was spent telling the stories of the miracles of Jesus. And Mark is the shortest. And Mark is the first gospel to portray Jesus speaking in parables. And he's also the first to discuss that Jesus walked on water. So the earliest opinions were that the author of Matthew was the tax collector and disciple of Jesus. Quote, various consideration 
cast serious doubt on those ancient views. First, the Gospel of Matthew contains, but is not itself, a collection of, of sayings. Second, a Hebrew version of this Gospel exists, but it's medieval, and scholars argue that the Gospel was originally written in Greek. Thus, it is not a translation. Third, the author of Matthew was almost certainly aware that the deconstruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 CE. Fourth, Jesus's main opponents in the story are Pharisees, whose authorities develop predominantly in the late first century. And fifth, according to the widely held scholarly opinion, the major sources of the author were the Greek Gospel of Mark and an additional uh, source, which we'll talk about later. Okay. This suggests that Matthew was written after 70 and probably between 80 and 90 AD. It was most likely written by a multilingual person, probably an Israelite. This person, most likely a man, would have known a lot about the Israelite tradition. So what were the circumstances at the time that this was written? Was like one of the things I was like, what's going on right now? Right. So the Roman Empire, during that time, there was no middle class. Basically, either you were like super rich or super poor like America today. <laughs> well, <laughs> or America or, um, in a little about bit, 10 years. <laughs> more, yeah, extreme, unfortunately, but a very few powerful men were in power, which does sound a little bit like what you're referring to. Yep. The other side of the coin was that there were the people who were very poor were most likely farmers, fishermen, artisans. Oh, okay. Artisan cheese. <laughs> um there were a very few, quote, undesirables, which would have been considered, quote, beggars, bandits, and sex workers. So Jesus is portrayed as an advocate for the, quote, undesirables, as well as the lower class. We hear him talk about lepers, bandits, fishermen, and beggars in Matthew. Women were also mentioned. However, it's pretty clear that this book was written by a man for a man. Right. Mansplained. Mansplained. <laughs> yes. Intersectionality right there. <laughs> the Gospel of Matthew implies that Jesus is a descendant of the King David and um, is the promised Messiah. So this is the, uh, we hear in Matthew the story of Herod, where um, Herod is the king and he orders the, the killing of all the babies in the city. Right. Um, to basically secure his place in, in the kingdom, right? That's the only place in the the, any of the gospels that we hear this story. Oh. So that's in Matthew. Matthew is the first time we hear about the birth of Jesus as well as the resurrection. So in the original books of Mark, remember the resurrection wasn't in there. Right. So right. this is the first time we're really hearing about that. I wonder if that's why it was ordered first in so many of the Bibles is, I mean, if you're, um, you know, trying to share a miracle, then you want to put your, your book that has the miracle in it, it before the book that doesn't. Well, and they also for a long time originally had believed that Matthew was written first. It was oh, intended okay. to be in order of, of the dates gotcha. written. However, it's been kind of. So it may have had less to do with the psychology of you know, convincing people of things and Correct. more to do with the timeline. Correct. The perceived timeline. Okay. Perceived timeline. I got exactly. you. It is thought that Matthew was written by other Jewish Christians, just like the author. So remember, everybody forgets that Jesus is a Jew and yeah. Judaism is a big thing, obviously, in the time and, and all of these Bibles. Right. I mean, 
Gospels. Thank you. (laughs) Matthew's Gospel highlights, quote, Israelite features such as poetic parallels, scribal arguments and emphasis on the law, religious practices and piety, symbolic numbers, scriptural quotation and fulfillment, genealogy, baptism as a rite of entry, Mm -hmm. a special meal related to Passover, and communal disciples and prayer. In this interpretation, Jesus becomes the authoritative interpreter of Moses, but also the promised messianic king of Israel. Matthew is also speaking to, Matthew and Mark are speaking to the Jewish communities of the time. So their points are to solidify that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also Matthew's like, hey, you know, there's a lot more Judaism in here than you might originally think. Right. Um, So those are the audiences of both of them. We're going to move on to Luke, which is the only gospel where Jesus doesn't walk on water. Oh. So who wrote Luke? The book itself references a lot of existing texts which is super interesting so we're kind of moving along the timeline here which we'll get to in a second but luke has a book that comes right after it the acts of the apostles also known as acts oh okay um so that's like the sequel to luke and it appears after john so it's the fifth book in the new testament um but the but acts is picks off essentially where luke leaves off and discusses the spread of christianity in rome So what, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I just heard you say is that Matthew may have informed Mark, no, Mark may have informed Matthew, which may have informed Luke. Correct. So what's the chance that all these guys were in like a book club together and they're like, hey, this is what I just wrote. Why don't you read it and see? Yes, that's very likely. And my last point is going to get to that. Perfect. So Luke is the most comprehensive of the text so far. So there's a prologue for Luke and the prologue of the gospel makes it clear that the author relies heavily on eyewitness accounts, which makes a lot of sense because the, but this book was written between 85 and 95. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, 60 years after, sure. So, uh, you know, the death of Jesus. So at this point, the eyewitness accounts are growing less and less. Yeah. But still possible. Still possible. However, the author of Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness. He's collecting information from other people. So he's interviewing people. Correct. Yeah, he's compiling. The book of Luke is so interesting because it's literally a collection of texts. So this guy went out and did his best to research and do a, you know, a chronological account of Jesus's life. So as opposed to using one or two sources, he He really did his research. Wow. Yes. Luke is my favorite. In Acts, the sequel and the use of we is used to refer to Paul and Luke. Okay. Together. Gotcha. Which suggests that Luke may have traveled with Paul and known him. However, the portrayal of Paul in Acts conflicts at numerous points with his self-testimony in Paul's own writings. Okay. So it's unclear. Gotcha. Back um, with you. But Luke is considered to be the first Christian historian. For example, he discusses Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. Quote, his travel is a creation of Luke, which selected material of various origins, arranged it into the framework of a journey, among other purposes. So he went out, found texts, and was like, this is the chronological order. So he placed it directly in order. Oh, okay. So he's the researcher type. We like the way that his yes, brain works. We like, yes, we like Luke. We know that Luke's audience is Greek-speaking and knowledgeable about scripture already. So his audience are Gentile most likely Christians, uh, which is the first that we've seen because we know that um, the Jewish community was the 
intended audience for our right other two books one of the most important things that luke is trying to portray in his book is that the church stands alongside the ancient people which he means the jewish people yeah but also represents a new development that fulfills god's purpose universalizing salvation and what that means is he's like hey we can all get along which is so interesting given you know the future of christianity and judaism and i think it's for a selfish reason and i'll which is because he's really sure to uh, to say that being christian is harmless in the roman order and that you can both be a roman and a christian and so really you know christianity in its early times was like a weird thing to be yeah and Christians we know in Rome were killed by the masses and um, because they were like, it wasn't widely accepted until Alexander, I believe, in the Roman Empire. And so he was the one that really made it mainstream oh. before then they didn't believe it in the masses. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So this is when the church kind of emerged as a community of Jews, Gentiles, Romans, and non-Romans. So the reason I love this book so much and and the time that it was written to, it's just really about inclusion Mm -hmm. and kind of developing Christianity as a whole. It's like the most positive, like intent uh, for the faith. So, okay. Yeah. Pretty cool. Which I think all of this is so interesting, given the way that you and I have talked about religion yeah, many times. For sure. And neither of us are particularly religious, mm-hmm. but understanding the context and the purpose and like who wrote them and when is really fascinating. You're shaking your head at me. And it's important. It's super important. Yeah. And I think that the fact that we can appreciate them without... Absolutely. You know, believing. I love that, love. Yeah. I yeah, really yeah, do. Yeah. So I just think that that's an interesting thing to note here. Yep. So Luke also has parables that don't appear in any of the other texts, um, including the parable about the Good Samaritan, which you might be familiar with. That um, one's a Godspell, I think. I need to get behind that. I need to watch it. You love Godspell. It's like Jesus Christ superstar, Ooh. but <gasps> toned down okay. and actually based on the Bible. Have you seen Hamilton 2? Or Hamlet 2? Hamlet. <laughs> There's a Hamlet 2. <laughs> rock me, rock me, rock me, sexy Jesus. No. no. <laughs> oh, I have it on DVD. I'll let you borrow it. Okay, please. Let's talk about John. John. Only briefly, though, because he's not invited to this he party. He is not. In, no, this will be super brief. So. John, we're not going to be discussing in detail because it's one not of one of the synoptic. And the reason it's not in the synoptic gospels is because it's like literally in a league of its own. There's all kinds of stuff that's in there. Was Rosie O'Donnell in there? She was not in there. Okay. But every everything in, else in the kitchen sink is in there. But to me, John was kind of written, in my personal opinion, kind of for the ratings. It was written last, and so it had a chance to kind of read the other three and... It's a little bit more, it takes a lot of liberties, I would say. It also has a really, it has the most hostile depiction between Jesus and the Jewish faith, Mm -hmm. the Jews, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because Jesus was a Jew and we know that um, it's most likely written from the opinions of the times versus when Jesus lived. Right. So, you know, understanding again, we talk about lenses all the time, you know, Things kind of bleed into uh, the opinions of authors sometimes when they when they write. Yeah. Um, 
Some of the stuff that John talks about, you can't find anywhere else, which is interesting. Um, Luke talks, uh, Luke says that Jesus is God. Which um, is interesting because Jesus never said that he himself is God. The general kind of theme of John, we know that it was written kind of as a persuasive gospel. So mm-hmm. the intent behind John is conversion. So oh. this is when we first see, instead of, you know, a, the- a theological um documentation of just like what was happening this is a much more persuasive text okay so that's it's which is fascinating interesting contrast to luke who is like peace love harmony luke was like let me do my research this is what's up yeah (laughs) and then john's like you know a little bit more sly with it it's a little bit more political he was the younger brother he was the younger brother he saw he read from the he wants to antagonize there we go So back to your original question about the sources for all of these, we are going to be briefly talking about the two and four source theories. Okay. So the two source theory says, um, which I touched on briefly in a quote that I mentioned earlier, but essentially it claims that the books of Matthew and Luke both use the book of Mark to write their gospels. It also says there would be an additional source, which we'll call Q, And whether the Q source was oral traditions or an actual text is unclear, but there would have been, um, it would have been used also in addition to Mark uh, to write Matthew and Luke. Okay. So that's the two source theory. The four source theory says that the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke had at least four sources. So Mark was a source, Q, which we know from the two source theory, as well as an M and an L. Ooh. Yes. For Mark and Luke. So M was the first. Matthew would have used M and Q as a source. Okay. Luke would have used Q and L. Makes sense to me. So Luke wouldn't have known about M and Matthew wouldn't have known about L, which is interesting. So there's a few discrepancies, but for the most part, that's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels is because as they grow, they genu- like generally share the same information. Fascinating. So like Luke doesn't talk about walking on water. Mark doesn't talk about the resurrection, although later it's added. So for the most part, you're going to hear a little bit about. But Matthew is the most... So Luke is potentially the most accurate because they had some eyewitness. He did the research. It's uh, it's all up for interpretation. Okay, cool. I, I don't know that. So I'm, we're not going to speculate too yeah, wildly for this one. No, not me personally, but it's all very interesting. And you can break it down by seeing like what's in common with the texts and what's left out. Right. Um, goes back to the narrative, you know, who's included and who's not. But in general, it's just so fascinating to me. And that is the Synoptic Gospels. Wow. It was a lot. This was like my most informative one yet, I would say. I think it's so interesting because, I mean, I grew up going to church and I know these stories. Yeah. But hearing them in this way is really Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, And hearing them from a historical perspective and not a persuasive perspective. Yeah. Is really fascinating. So you did a great job. Thank you. You're welcome. My plan is, you know, just to kind of lay it all out based on the research that I found and sure try not to get to give as little opinions as possible but um you know I'm really interested in motivation and authorship 
Like, it's so important to understand that in relation to events. Oh, absolutely. And I think that you have to put it in a historical context. You can't remove Mm -hmm. it and just observe it as it exists today. Yeah. And expect to be able to fully understand it. And it goes back to, you know, what we spoke about earlier. Things change with time. Right. So, you know, Luke, Luke's perspective, I mean, excuse me, John's perspective you know, in his authorship might have been a little bit uh, persuaded, I would say, by the, his current climate. Yeah. And so, yeah, that happens a lot. Well, I think there's also, like, these books have been translated to multiple languages and interpreted many times since then. Like, there's so many versions of the Bible. There are. And the original texts we, in the New Testament anyway, we know were mostly written in Greek. Mm-hmm. So, but they... Some of the other texts were written in Hebrew and Aramaic and... Yeah. It depends on if you're talking about New or Old Testament. Right. But yeah, but what books are included, what aren't, and, you know, which ones came out later, and um, it's just all... It's crazy stuff. Well, so thinking about intersectionality, because we oh, are an oh, intersectionality I podcast, <laughs> I, one of the things that I find interesting about the Bible in general is, and correct me if I'm wrong... But the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. Will thou us go? I will go. Will thou us lodge? I will lodge. That people will be my people. Mm -hmm. And thy God, my God. Um, But the book of Ruth is really the only book that I can think of that was written by a woman. That we know, or written from a female perspective. Now, I know Esther played a big role in the Bible. Um, I mean, I think it's extremely safe to say 99% of the books were written by men yeah and i think that there's an interesting power dynamic associated with that and just thinking about but one of the things i think is really interesting is my brother took a class when he was in college called something about god being a woman Mm -hmm. like not the ariana grande song but (laughs) like how religion from dharma it's alanis morissette (laughs) (laughs) but how religion um you know impacts the way that we think about a, a gender and yeah. sexuality yeah. um oh yeah and creating those power dynamics like we always imagine god and jesus mm-hmm. as like hyper masculine mm-hmm. um but really if god is an omnipresent omniscient yeah being yeah. he is technically above gender and without gender he True. is just there so why do we use male pronouns well and and it languages a lot to do with it too and it, it does go back to translation as well because you know we know german for example has a quote neuter it's der die das right those called um, uh, articles yes yeah, so you know and then the the romance languages have masculine and feminine so correct it could be just down to a translation Oh, absolutely. And I think that also, I mean, it is of the time, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were males dominated things like men could have as many female concubines and women and wives as they wanted. Like that was and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. I'm not a historical. Well, that was less of a, a Judaic and Christian like practice, but definitely of the of, of the, the time, though. of the time and of yeah. the location. But 
And back to your original point, too, about gender and, like, authorship, a lot of these things would have been discussed and written down later, and it's also about education, yeah. too, because women weren't necessarily educated, right. and, you know, we know from the, the four-source theory is that there's other sources out there, and even the two-source theory, like, is it an oral tradition? Is it written down? You know, all of yeah. those things haven't necessarily become clear at this well, time and at some point someone decided that voices like mary magdalene's did not need to be included mm-hmm. which is why we didn't find her book until later yeah so i think a lot of this goes back to power structures and were developed and how they continue to impact our culture and yeah. society and understanding oh yeah today absolutely i think about the king james version of the bible all the time which i would say would is is a to me, it's difficult. Uh, it's really widely used, um, but it's also re- written in a really outdated. Yeah, it's hard to read. It's hard to read and understand. So, um, but then you get into the the issues again, like you said, with translation. You know, uh, when once you dilute it further and further, uh, even though you might be updating it, you might be losing some of the original intent. Well, and when you think today about how religion or not religion, how languages. Um, have words that exist in some languages and don't exist in other languages, how much of that was there. And we're not just interpreting or Mm -hmm. translating one language from one language to another. It's multiple languages. Multiple languages. And literally this was like translated and hand scribed and yeah you know it's all it's very labor intensive and well and it did rely a lot on oral tradition. Yeah. Um and who's sharing the stories and who are they being told to. Mm Absolutely. It's crazy. It's so interesting to me. So I hope that you... I feel like I learned so much and I'm super intrigued and I really hope that we come back to this at some point because there's so much more to deep dive into with the Bible. We barely talked about John. I'm coming (laughs) for you, John. (laughs) We'll do a whole John and Ruth episode one day, maybe. Oh, love it. The book of Ruth is just my fave. Yeah, it's really good. It's used a lot in wedding ceremonies. Yeah. Ray will tell you all the time. He's a videographer. He films weddings every single weekend. And (laughs) there's like a handful of Bible verses that they use at weddings Mm -hmm. because they're so, you know, because they talk about love and they're not about. Yeah. Smiting anybody. And, (laughs) you know, it's it's pretty um, it's a select few. Yeah. I had a um, a lesbian wedding I went to a couple of years ago and they said, um, they didn't want Jesus mentioned at their wedding. They didn't want any Bible verses. And they went so far as to say no men with beards were allowed. Oh, my goodness. Which I thought was so funny. Wow. Pretty extreme. It's all about being tolerant and about opening your mind to things other than. Yeah. Like, we all need to stop being so selfish and stuck in our our own ways because everybody is entitled to their own opinions and their own ways of belief. And like, we just all need to everybody let your freak flag fly (laughs) and do whatever the fuck you want to do. It's none of my fucking business. (laughs) I mean, I think the moral and I was reading um, about how overarching, like so many religions basically teach the same version of the golden rule. D bad. We say it in our house. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, which I think if you're living up to that, then everything else kind of falls into place. Like do your best to help people at the very least. Don't be a dick. Amen. Signing off. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
Great job this week. Thanks so much, CA. Thank you. And thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening. dragons do you like having a good time then you should give our podcast crit nasty a try join us the four johnson siblings every monday as we go on an epic crazy fantasy adventure we are playing six-year-old pageant queens in our current campaign pageant season follow val bonnie and blessing b83 as they race to uncover a mystery we have pool chicken fights secret gambling rings club dancing sneaking and an epic final pageant and so much more you can bet whatever we get up to it's gonna be a little bit crit nasty find us wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on instagram and twitter at crit underscore pod stay nasty